All right, good morning. It is a delight to be with you again. Uh, this church has been just an encouragement uh, to me personally, to uh, my own ministry endeavors. Uh, when I was here last time, I mentioned that Eric was actually pivotal early on um, in 2018 uh, when I had maybe the third opportunity to just put a desire in front of my elders to plant a church in New Orleans, Louisiana, where I'm from. And uh, this time I needed to come with more than just a desire, uh, just some plans. I was at the end of my seminary training, uh, or more than halfway through at least, and wanted to really put in front of them how everything that I had learned during my training and from our equipping at Grace Bible Church could be applied to planting a church in New Orleans. And so I called Eric and said, hey, if you could pitch to, to your elders again, planting a church, how would you do it? And he just helpfully walked me through some things. And so in November 2018, I got to present to our elders uh, a plan for church planting um, that actually included just sort of a, you know, imaginary timeline. Hey, here's how I think things could fall into place. Uh, after I was made an elder in 2021, then shortly after that, we presented formally to our church plans to, to plant a church in New Orleans. And so we hosted a few interest meetings. And out of that in June of 2021, a small group of about uh, a dozen families, a dozen households started to meet together uh, as, uh, to just prayerfully consider who wants to relocate from, uh, you know, Gilbert, Arizona, the, the second safest city in America, and go to New Orleans to plant a church. And so out of uh, that group over the past couple of years almost now, we've been just meeting uh, weekly, and that group has dwindled down to about five households, um, including my own. And so uh, we've got 10 adults, 17 children, who in November of, of this year, Lord willing, will relocate from Arizona, the Phoenix area, and find ourselves in New Orleans East. Um, that's, that's the plan. So our last Sunday, actually, as I put my um, watch on silent, I'm getting notices about the, the danger in New Orleans right now. The irony is a, a new story about something awful that happened in New Orleans. So um, my last Sunday at Grace Bible Church in Tempe is actually going to be October 29th. And uh, we are planning to launch November 12th of this year. And, and there's lots of details that, that need to get taken care of between now and then. But... That's our plan, um, and, and somewhere in New Orleans East, I plan on preaching God's Word, so you can pray for us. Uh, right now, we're in just a, a season of, of lots of change and transition. Uh, we've moved out of our house and started using our house as a short-term rental property uh, to save a little bit to purchase a property in New Orleans. Uh, we've moved in with a family from our church. Uh, Kyle and Ashley Frazee have four kids of their own, and so all 13 of us are uh, living together, and it could not be sweeter. It could not be easier. It has just been uh, a delight to find ourselves um, in such close proximity with dear friends. Uh, we, we plan on doing quite a bit of traveling uh, this summer uh, just to visit some other partnering churches or like-minded ministries, that this will be a, a unique opportunity for me, for me to, to learn from uh, like-minded ministries and their pastors uh, there. So in June and July, we'll be on the road uh, traveling to Houston, Atlanta, Lynchburg, Virginia, New York, and then eventually Jupiter, Florida. And uh, you know, right now, if, you're, if you'd like to know a little bit more about the, what we're endeavoring to do in New Orleans, you can visit Grace Bible NOLA, Grace Bible NOLA, N-O-L-A, for New Orleans, Louisiana, dot org. 
And uh, we've got a support letter and lots of information on that website uh, where you can, can just read about what we're endeavoring to do. We're about 57% supported um, for our, our year one needs, which include startup costs and operating expenses for the first year. Uh, that number will be smaller, just operating costs. And so uh, still needing support, trusting the Lord for, for that and, and just eager to go. I mean, I cannot be more convinced uh, as time goes on of the impossibility of what we're endeavoring to do, to see God's word brought to a, a dark place and to actually reform lives, to save souls, to open blind eyes, to change uh, an entire uh, generation, the trajectory of, of a generation as families and, you know, broken people. Sin has just invaded lives. And so we are, are looking forward to uh, going and accomplishing the impossible by God's help. Um, if it wasn't impossible, then it wouldn't be worth pursuing. If we could do it by human ingenuity and if we could figure it out, then we could let people with man, man-made wisdom go do those things. But what we're laboring to do, what we're endeavoring to do is uh, something so much more uh, lofty. Uh, this is going to bear fruit, I believe, into eternity, uh, just as people sought to come to Jackson Hole and, and your own lives have been changed by the, the clarity of God's word. Uh, I'm, I'm more convinced today of the need for uh, New Orleans, for the gospel to reach that city. I'm more convinced today of the simplicity of a biblical motto of ministry, uh, how to do ministry, to go to a place, love people, and open up God's word and just teach them, teach them, teach them, teach them. Uh, teach them the truth and watch God's word take a hold of those lives and transform them. It's not complicated there are lots of details, um, but the simplicity of what God has given us is just so clear and so basic. Uh, and really that, that does ultimately, I think, boil down to the power of God's word as it's preached, as it's taught. Uh, God has given us his word. There is no greater treasure that you own, Christian, than your Bible. What you have in God speaking to you transcends any valuables that you have in this life. God has given us an authoritative word. I love that that's your second uh, essential or core value. The, it, it's about God's word, about the scriptures, that God has spoken authoritatively, the only way he can speak. And he has spoken clearly. How awful would it be to have the God of the universe reveal himself in a non-authoritative or unclear, insufficient way. But he has revealed himself in those ways, authoritatively, sufficiently, and clearly. And that's actually the, the doctrine that I want to put before you this morning, is the clarity of God's word. You already know this. If you're a Christian, you know by experience that God's word is clear. Because when it came to you, you understood the word. And it pro for most of us, it wasn't the first time that we heard a clear word from God of what we had to do to be saved. But at some point, we finally heard that same articulation of truth and God powerfully used it to save us. We understood in a believing way the gospel. That doctrine, the clarity or to put it in theological terms, the perspicuity of Scripture, perspicuity, that is, a, is a, an unclear way of saying clear. <laughs> that is an essential doctrine. And it's a doctrine that from Genesis 3 has been under attack. Did God really say? It's an attack on lots of characteristics, lots of qualities of God's Word, but one of which is the clarity of God's word. Did God really say, are you sure? Is that really how you should understand what he's communicated? And in our day, it's no different. 
the clarity of God's word is under attack. I'll just give you one example currently. We are being told as a culture that in order to understand things that God has articulated, even Christians are, are buying into this falsehood, to understand what God has spoken, things like righteousness and justice and equity, every good path, Proverbs 2.9, those are biblical categories. And to understand those things, then you need to look a certain way. You need to possess uh, certain traits that make you better able to understand truth. Things like a certain color skin, things like a certain handicaps, to be a part of certain minority groups. And if you're not a part of those groups, then you can't understand. What you really need is not a clear word from God and men and women who understand that clear word to open up the scriptures and clearly articulate what God has said. That's not what you need. You need someone who fits into these minority groups. So there are a certain ethnicity, a certain uh, gender, and those are multiplying by the day, as you know. You need those people, those minority groups, to come and show you the way. That's an attack, although oftentimes it may be uh, ironic or, you know, unintentional. That is an attack on the clarity, the perspicuity of God's word. Because either God has spoken clearly, clearly enough to overcome whatever differences that we have that are common to man, or he is not. But the scriptures teach us that God has spoken clearly. And so I want you to open up your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 13. We're going to see in short order here that God has spoken so clearly. God has spoken so clearly. This doctrine of perspicuity is a doctrine for which men and women have died over the centuries. This very doctrine that God has spoken clearly, men risked their lives teaching the scriptures and translating the scriptures because they believed this core doctrine of Scripture. Just listen to the words of William Tyndale. He's a man who is almost single-handedly responsible for the English Bibles that sit open on your laps. William Tyndale died just to put a plain English text into the hands of English speakers. And it cost him his life. But here's what he said. A thousand books had they lever to put forth against their abominable doings and doctrine than that the scripture should come to light. Talking about the Roman Catholicism at the time, they would rather put a thousand books in the, into the hands of English speakers than that the scriptures should come to light. He said, this thing only moved me to translate the New Testament because I had perceived by experience how that it was impossible to establish the lay people in any truth except the scripture were plainly laid before their eyes in their mother tongue that they might see the process, order, and meaning of the text. This man was so convinced that if, if the darkness that has dwelled over this land for hundreds of years would be lifted, and if the culture of the day, if, if that were to change wholesale, the only thing that's needed is a scripture that people can understand. Do away with the Latin mass where people don't even understand what's being articulated. That is a, a stratagem of Satan to keep God's word undiscernible to the common man. And so this man, with all of his education, the, the best English, uh, had the best grasp of English in his day as a scholar, 
You still have words in your Bible that were created by William Tyndale, words like scapegoat, gift, uh, atonement. Those are Tyndaleanisms. He leveraged all of that just to put a plain translation of the scriptures, and he knew if that gets out, it's over. People will see what God has finally said, and they did. They did. Here, one more reformer, Martin Luther, died 10 years after Tyndale. He believed the same doctrine of the perspicuity of Scripture. And he had this to say about why the Scriptures don't seem clear when they are. Here's what Luther said. I know that to many people, a great deal remains obscure. But that is due not to any lack of clarity in Scripture, but to their own blindness and dullness, in that they make no effort to see truth, which in itself could not be plainer. They are like men who cover their eyes or go from daylight into darkness and hide there, and then blame the sun or the darkness of the day for their inability to see. So let wretched men abjure that blasphemous perversity which would blame the darkness of their own hearts on the plain scriptures of God. Why does God's word seem unclear? There's lots of reasons. One, in in Luther's day, is because people didn't want to know the truth. And so when God spoke clearly, they blamed God for being unclear. God's not unclear. What he said is so clear It indicts you, and the person with a perverted conscience doesn't want to know. As Jesus said in John 3, men hated the light. They loved the darkness rather than the light. And so when light came, men accused it of being unclear. I mean, how how often does that happen in the gospel? Even the disciples, poor disciples, at the end of Jesus' ministry, now you're speaking plainly. You know, we read from John 19 this morning. Could that be any clearer? The details of Jesus' death, of his trial that led up to his crucifixion? You even get in the text. This was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, just so you know. It was in all three languages. So everybody who spoke those languages knew King, Jesus Christ, King of the Jews. That's clarity. In this passage of 1 Kings 13, we get in this narrative, this portion of Israel's history that documents her rebellion against God, even from the top down, her kings, even her kings refused to listen to God. In that narrative, as those things are detailed for us, we get an incredible reminder of the clarity of God's word. And so in this passage... We're going to look at really the entire chapter this morning. 1 Kings 13 provides six convincing proofs of the clarity of God's word. Six convincing proofs of the clarity of God's word. This text is not unique. You could really parachute into almost any narrative where God is speaking, and you can identify how the text implies the clarity of of Scripture. But this is a a fun text. This is a phenomenal text that just shows this doctrine in all of its glorious clarity of the clarity of Scripture. So I'm going to read for us these words, and then we'll just walk back and we'll see these six convincing proofs of the clarity of God's Word. 1 Kings 13, verse 1 God's word says, Now behold, there came a man of God from Judah to Bethel by the word of Yahweh, while Jeroboam was standing by the altar to burn incense. And he cried against the altar by the word of Yahweh and said, O altar, altar, thus says Yahweh, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David. Josiah is his name, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. Then he gave a miraculous sign the same day, saying, 
This is the miraculous sign which Yahweh has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn apart, and the ashes which are on it shall be poured out. Now it happened that when the king heard the word of the man of God, which he cried against the altar in Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him. But his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up, so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar also was torn apart, and the ashes were poured out from the altar, according to the miraculous sign which the man of God had given by the word of Yahweh. Then the king answered and said to the man of God, Please entreat Yahweh your God and pray for me, that my hand may be restored to me. So the man of God entreated Yahweh, and the king's hand was restored to him, and it became as it was before. Then the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a gift. But the man of God said to the king, If you were to give me half your house, I would not go with you, nor would I eat bread or drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of Yahweh, saying, You shall eat no bread, nor drink water, nor return by the way which you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way which he came to Bethel. Now an old prophet was living in Bethel, and his sons came and recounted to him all the work which the man of God had done that day in Bethel. The words which he had spoken to the king, these also they recounted to their father. And their father said to them, Which way did he go? And his sons had seen the way which the man of God who came from Judah had gone. Then he said to his son, Saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him, and he rode away on it. So he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said to him, Come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I cannot return with you, nor go with you, nor will I eat bread or drink water with you in this place. For a word came to me by the word of Yahweh, you shall eat no bread, nor drink water there. Do not return by going the way which you came. And he said to him, I also am a prophet like you. And an angel spoke to me by the word of Yahweh, saying, Bring him back with you to your house that he may eat bread and drink water. But he dealt falsely with him. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. Now it happened as they were sitting down at the table that the word of Yahweh came to the prophet who had brought him back. And he called out to the man of God who came from Judah saying, Thus says Yahweh, because you have rebelled against the word, of Yahweh, and have not kept the commandment which Yahweh your God commanded you, but have returned and eaten bread and drunk water in the place which he said to you, eat no bread and drink no water, your body shall not come to the grave of your fathers. Now it happened after he had eaten bread, after he had drunk, and after he had drunk, that he saddled the donkey for him, for the prophet whom he had brought back. Then he went, and on the way a lion met him and put him to death, and his body was thrown on the road with the donkey standing beside it. The lion also was standing beside the body. And behold, men passed by and saw the body thrown on the road and the lion standing beside the body. So they came and spoke about it in the city where the old prophet lived. Then the prophet who brought him back from the way heard it and said, It is the man of God who rebelled against the command of Yahweh. Therefore, Yahweh has given him to the lion, which has mauled him and put him to death, according to the word of Yahweh, which he spoke to him. Then he spoke to his son, saying, Saddle the donkey for me, and they saddled it. And he went and found his body thrown on the road with the donkey and the lion standing beside the body. The lion had not eaten the body nor mauled the donkey. So the prophet took up the body of the man of God and laid it on the donkey and brought it back. And he came to the city of the old prophet to mourn and to bury him. He laid his body in his own grave and they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother. Now it happened after he had buried him that he spoke to his son, saying, When I die, you shall bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones, for the word shall surely happen 
which he cried by the word of Yahweh against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places which are in the cities of Samaria. After this event, Jeroboam did not return from his evil way, but he returned and made priests of the high places from among all the people, any who delighted to be so, he ordained. So they became priests of the high places. And this event became sin to the house of Jeroboam, even to blot it out and destroy it from off the face of the earth. A bit of an odd story that we have here. But this story is bookended by the accounts of Jeroboam, King Jeroboam. It's bookended specifically by Jeroboam's idolatry. If you remember, Jeroboam is that enemy of Solomon, whom God raised up because of Solomon's disobedience. He fled to Egypt until Solomon had died, and one Solomon's son, Rehoboam, took the throne. He came back, and when Rehoboam foolishly was, uh, accepted the foolish counsel and foolishly heeded that counsel, the nation was split. Half the, the nation, or the two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, went to Rehoboam. The other ten went to Jeroboam. And Jeroboam had a promise from God, similar to David, that his household would be established forever if he would obey. But instead, Jeroboam did not obey the Lord. He, at the end of chapter 12, decided to essentially construct a separate religion. He establishes a new priesthood, new holidays or holy days. He builds uh, altars in Bethel and Dan. Dan would have been as far north as you could have gotten in Israel. Bethel would have been as far south in Israel just before you hit Judah, Judah's territory. And then he builds his own idols in those places where those altars, those places of worship are, and says, these are Yahweh. These are the the God who rescued you from Egypt. Similar to Exodus 32. It's happening again. They build idols to represent God in disobedience to the the Ten Commandments. And so what we have here is really a story about Jeroboam's idolatry. And in the midst of that story, God wants us to be reminded about his word coming through his prophets that has not been heeded. And so verse 1, we're introduced to a man of God coming from Judah to Bethel, to Bethel. This is the southernmost region in the newly formed nation of Israel under Jeroboam's leadership. And he is there practicing his idolatry. And so this quickly unfolds for us the six convincing proofs of the clarity of God's word. This is in verse 1, the first proof, the timely arrival the timely arrival. This timely arrival proves the clarity of God's word. Just notice verse 1. There came a man of God, that's a synonymous term with prophet, but he comes from Judah. So he's traveling north into Bethel. He's from enemy territory, what's now enemy territory. He's from Judah. And he came by the word of Yahweh. So the word of Yahweh has clearly spoken to this man. And so he comes by that word. So how clear is God's word? It's clear enough to get a prophet to go into enemy territory at the exact timing that Jeroboam is there to practice his idolatry. He is standing by the altar to burn incense. This very moment, the God who knows all things, who is in control and sovereign over all things, speaks a clear word to his prophet, this man of God, to send him at the perfect timing with his message in his mouth. 
That's how clear God's word is. It gets his man there at his timing. So proof number one of the clarity of God's word is the timely arrival. Proof two is the bold prophecy. The bold prophecy in verse two. Verse two says, and he cried out against the altar by the word of Yahweh. God has sent this prophet to speak not even directly to the king. Just notice to whom or to what this prophet speaks. He cries out against the altar, to the altar and says, O altar, altar, thus says Yahweh. Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. So he says, altar, altar, you, you, just talking to the altar. But Jeroboam standing right there to burn incense. And this rebel king is not even worthy of God's attention. He's going to cry out against the altar, the inanimate object symbolizing all of Jeroboam's idolatry. This is among many things, an indication of the loss of God's favor to Jeroboam. When God doesn't speak to a people, it's indication of God's curse, not God's blessing. That's why when you have sound preaching week after week, you should just take that as a sign. We are favored by God. He loves to speak to us through his word. So he's given us faithful shepherds. This is not that in 1 Kings 13. But just notice this bold prophecy that indicates the clarity of God's word, how the clarity of God's speech just shines through all of the details mentioned in verse 2. This is explicitly stated as a word from God. This is by the word of Yahweh. And he says, thus says Yahweh. So it's explicitly from God. The prophet even calls for, the attentive, calls for attentiveness. Behold, so anybody in, in the sound of my voice, behold, listen up, and then directs the message to the altar. And just look at all the details that unfold from this prophecy. There are, by my count, at least six details mentioned here. You have the gender of a person, a son, the status of that person, he's currently unborn, but he's one day will be born, shall be born. You have the family, the specific family from which this son is born, the house of David, and even the name of the unborn child. Josiah is his name. This is before his parents were born, before the, Josiah was even thought of. God is declaring through this prophet, there's going to be a son born to the house of David. Josiah is going to be his very name. And let me tell you the deed that he's actually going to accomplish. He's going to sacrifice the priests of the high places. Notice that's plural places, right? That's the idolatrous priests that Jeroboam had participated in establishing who burn incense on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. So this altar in Bethel, the priests that sacrifice for you, that are a part of this idolatrous system, there's coming a person, a son, Josiah, by name of the house of David. Remember, that's, that means Judah. He is actually going to see to it that in Israel's territory, the idolatry is done away with. That's the prophecy. Cries out against the very altar. Got to visit Israel uh, earlier this year in January, and we got to visit uh, the site opposite this in Dan. Not impressive. But these places are in view. The reforms are going to come about. Here, he's identifying in Bethel. Just notice the details of that prophecy. When God speaks, He speaks with that kind of clarity. Sometimes he gives less details, but they're not less clear. They're just less detailed. 
equally clear. And this actually happens. Hundreds of years prior, this would come about in King Josiah's day. There's a third convincing proof of the clarity of God's word, and it's the miraculous sign. If you doubted whether this man was a genuine prophet, verse 3 says, then he gave a miraculous sign the same day. This is really in the same breath as he's crying out against the altar. He continues saying this, this is the miraculous sign which Yahweh has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn apart and the ashes which are on it shall be poured out. Just notice verse 5, what happens? The altar also was torn apart and the ashes were poured out from the altar according to the miraculous sign which the man of God had given by the word of Yahweh. He says it and shortly after it happens. This is the events predicted and fulfilled in short order. And in the details, even the, the way that it's written, it, it happens just as it is written in our Bibles. And this is the way that prophecy always works. Always works. God speaks clearly, and then those events are clearly fulfilled in the same way. Uh, this should be an encouragement if you're just reading your Bible and taking it at face value. You know, if, you're, if you practice, which I know is taught here at this church, a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic, that just means that when you pick up the Bible, you're not looking to allegorize the text. You're not looking for a spiritual or hidden or secret meaning. No, it, it just says what it says. And if I can understand the grammar, which few of you love and enjoy. But if you can understand the grammar, then you can understand what God has clearly said. And this is why page after page in the New Testament looks back at the Old Testament and says, yep, 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 yep. Fulfilled just as it, as it was written. We read one of those in, uh, or multiple of those in, in John 19, right? Things are fulfilled just as they were written. And if you read your New Testament and you look back at the Old Testament and you go, I didn't get that from the Old Testament, then it just means you weren't reading well enough. You didn't understand clearly enough what God had clearly said. So we should work hard at understanding those ancient texts in the Old Testament because they still mean what they always meant and they are fulfilled literally, specifically, precisely in the New Testament as they were predicted. This is just a single example of the way that God always fulfills prophecy here so clearly for us in 1 Kings chapter 13. So the timely arrival of this man of God, the bold prophecy that he brings, and thirdly, the miraculous sign that he gives are all convincing proofs of the clarity of God's word. Just notice in verse 4, this king is in his rebellion. Uh, an immediate curse falls on him as he seeks to harm God's prophet. His hand decays on the spot. As he instructs his soldiers around him, sees him, his hand decays in front of him and he can't pull it back. You would think at that point, the rebellious king would say, okay. I get it, God. I hear you loud and clear. Actually, let's tear the altar down. Let's get rid of the, the idolatry that we've been practicing. The God that this prophet is speaking for is the one true God. Let's turn. He doesn't do that. All he's worried about is his hand. So verse 6, he asks for this man of God to entreat God on his behalf. He doesn't pray to God himself. And graciously, even for rebels, God is merciful. He restores his hand. Another proof that he's in rebellion and that God ought to be obeyed. God is kind. So he tries to show some kindness, some gesture of kindness and hospitality to this man of God. But he's already been prepared for this. And so he tells him what really for us becomes the fourth 
convincing proof of the clarity of God's word. It is number four, the strict prohibition. The strict prohibition. And this is repeated twice for us if you were, if you were following along carefully. Once in verses 7 to 10, and then again in verses 16 and 17, the prohibition that God has already given his prophet. Once it's given in verse, uh, just look at verse 8. If you were to give me half your house, I wouldn't go with you, nor would I eat bread or drink water in this place. Why? Because God's told him not to. Verse 9, it was commanded me by the word of Yahweh, saying, you shall eat no bread, nor drink water, nor return by the way which you came. Those are the instructions. How clear is that? Don't eat, don't drink, don't go. Don't eat bread, don't drink water, don't go back by the same way. That's clarity. How do we know he has clarity? Because he's invited again, welcomed into someone else's home, and hospitality is extended to him. And he repeats the same instructions now given by this old prophet. Then he said to him, come home with me and eat bread, verse 15. But the prohibition is repeated by this man of God. I cannot return with you, nor go with you, nor will I eat bread or drink water with you in this place. Why? Verse 17, for a word came to me by the word of Yahweh, you shall eat no bread, nor drink water there. Do not return by going the way which you came. That's clarity. He understands clearly what God has communicated, what's off limits, what's prohibited for him. So in both of these parts where we see the strict prohibition, an invitation comes, a rejection to that invitation is given. And then he's reminded both times God has spoken. He says, it was commanded me, or a word came to me by the word of Yahweh. It was commanded me by the word of Yahweh. God has spoken. That's divine speech. And then the details in both instances are the same. Eat no bread, drink no water, return another way. That's clarity. This old prophet who's living in Bethel, you just have to wonder, he's in Bethel, where the idolatry is being practiced. How come he didn't go and rebuke Jeroboam? How come he didn't go and cry out against the altar? Why hadn't God sent him? And the story just, really lets us in on it. He's actually a part of the problem. He knows well what happened, what was said to Jeroboam, what was said against the altar by this younger prophet, this man of God. He's called a man of God all throughout the text. There's no name given to him. But he's just called a man of God. All of these details are recounted by this old prophet's sons. He goes, he finds him, and he extends what he already knows is forbidden, has been forbidden by God. Just notice when he extends hospitality, trying to get this younger prophet to rebel against God, how he finally undermines the clarity that this young prophet already has. Just notice in verse 18, and this is the fifth, this is going to be the fifth convincing proof, is the clear deception. The clear deception. Verses 18 and 19. He said to him, so this old prophet says to this man of God, I also am a prophet like you, And an angel spoke to me by the word of Yahweh. Notice all the instances thus far that have been mentioned about how God has spoken. Never until now has an angel been brought up. There are are a couple things happening in this deception, in this clear deception. First off, I want to point out that the deception is clear In verse 18 at the end, he dealt falsely with him. I mean, that's like just a textual commentary from the writer. And you're thinking, well, yeah, 
We know. That's one reason that the deception's clear. It's also clear just because up until now, we've already been clearly told what God has clearly said. If you know beforehand what God has clearly said, then when deception comes along, you can spot it. That's the importance of knowing what God has clearly articulated. To whatever degree you lack clarity, as Christians, to whatever degree we lack clarity, pick your area of doctrine. A, doctrine, a doctrinal area like eschatology, perhaps, right? The end times. Lots of views floating around, even faithful men, good godly men disagree. God's not unclear about what's going to happen in the future. He might not have told us as much as we want to know, but he's told us everything we need to know, and everything that he's told us is clear. To whatever degree that we lack clarity, we risk falling into error. And this applies across the board to any area of doctrine. Your Christology, if you're not clear on who Christ is and what the gospel is, then to that degree you risk, to the detriment of your own soul, falling into error. Our ecclesiology, if we're not clear on what God says about the church, then we risk falling into error in our practice as a church. In theology proper, doctrine of God, pneumatology, doctrine of the Spirit, and every other doctrine, right? If we lack clarity, then we risk falling into error. We know that the error being introduced by this old prophet is in fact false because we know what God has already clearly said in the preceding verses. That's protection for us. Why does God speak clearly? One reason is to protect his people from soul-destroying error. He does a couple things in his deception. First off, he establishes internal authority, what I'm calling internal authority. Notice the first words out of his mouth after the already clear word of God has been articulated. He says, I also am a prophet like you. So I have to establish myself as an authority. Oh, you're a prophet? Well, me too. The degrees you hold, the education you've received, I have the same things, right? This is like that. I'm going to establish myself as an authority so, so that now you don't have a leg up on me, if, it, if you will. And people do that, right? We live in the day of the expert. Listen to the expert. And so if you want to counsel biblically, then you've got to be a certified biblical counselor. I am a certified biblical counselor, and that's ridiculous, right? Matt isn't teaching you, hey, if you want to be competent to counsel here, then you've got to get ACBC's stamp of approval. The word of God is opened here week after week, and if you're receiving the word well, submitting yourself to the word, growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, then you should be competent to counsel, regardless of what parachurch organization might say amen to your counsel. We live in the day of the expert. So that mindset has even been brought into the church. This man is establishing himself as a quote-unquote expert. I also am a prophet like you. Those things mean nothing to God. What matters to God is, do you believe he's spoken clearly? Do you understand what he is clearly articulated? And here, this so-called expert clearly misunderstands what God has said. He is deceiving. He is a liar. But that's not all he does. Because it's not just good enough to be an equal, on equal footing as this other man of God. He adds now to the authority of God's word by saying, and an angel spoke to me by the word of Yahweh. So not only is he seeking to establish himself right, internally as an authority, but now externally he's adding an authority alongside God's word. This man of God has been telling us 
by the word of Yahweh, by the word of Yahweh, by the word of the Lord, over and over in the text. You can't get more authoritative than that. So what if an angel has come and told you something else? It doesn't add authority to what God has already said. He is the preeminent authority. For someone else to come along and say, God has spoken, would not increase the authoritativeness of God's word. So that's why when your Bible speaks, it has spoken. So what if a pastor comes and says, yeah, this is what God has said. That doesn't add to the authority. He's just, if he's worth his salt as a, as a pastor, then he's just saying, God, the authority has spoken. You must submit to his word. Not because I had anything to do with it. Not because I'm telling you. Not because someone else affirmed that God had said this. Not because your favorite commentary says, yeah, that's how you should interpret God's word. This is what this prophet is seeking to do in his deception. And whenever that's happening, whenever someone's seeking to elevate themselves as an authority, and whenever someone is seeking to leverage external authorities outside of God's word and say, you must obey God because of this other outside authority, that person is a liar. They are deceiving they might, may not be aware of all of the intricacies of the deception, but this is a, a tactic of Satan. If I obey a man, or if I obey the words of God because a man has said it, it doesn't count as sincere obedience. Right? What did Paul tell the Thessalonians? We are constantly thankful for this, that when you receive the word from us, you received it not as the word of man, but as what it really is, the word of God. The Thessalonians obeyed Paul and his companions because they brought God's word, not because they thought so much of Paul. They obeyed God as it, Paul articulated God's words. <laughs> Paul was the messenger. The words were God's. So this is a clear deception just from the leveraging of other authorities. And just notice, whenever that happens, whenever external authorities outside of God's word are, are sought, the only result is disobedience. It's a contradiction, a direct contradiction to what God has spoken here he says, the word of Yahweh says, bring him back with you to your house that he may eat bread and drink water. It's the exact opposite of what God has said. Verse 19, so he went back with him and he ate bread in his house and drank water. If he had only believed the word that he had first heard, it was clear the first time. Don't lose sight of that. Cling to what you've attained. That's so helpful for us to remember. When the gospel came, just think about your own conversion. The message you heard, when you heard it, did that not save you? When you finally believed the gospel, Christ and him crucified, was that not glorious to you? Did you not see finally your own sin and truth in all of its brilliant light and clarity? When, when things don't seem clear to you, just, just step back for a moment. What do I know to be true? What do I know that I've heard? What do I know has made a difference in me? Things might not seem clear for some reason today. Just go back. What's true? What can I stand on? What has thus far to this day been a rock for me? Go back to those basic truths. That was a clear word. I know it's clear. Lord, help me. Give me greater clarity, but I'm going to stand here and I'm not going to move until you give me greater clarity moving forward. I'm going to stand on those, those truths that have worked for me, that saved me, that have transformed me, that have protected me. This is what that man of God should have practiced. And when he didn't, disaster was the result. And that's what we get finally, this final convincing proof number six, the swift chastisement. 
the swift chastisement. Verses 20 through 32. Notice just in, in tremendous irony. Now that the disobedience has been committed by the young prophet, what happens? Well, what happens, what comes to to this young prophet is just simply another clear word from God. God just gives him another clear word. He doesn't change the methods. God doesn't alter the approach. Now that you've rebelled against my clear word, what do you need? I'm going to give you another clear word directly from me through, interestingly enough, the, the deceiver. Yikes. This is verse 20. As they were sitting down at the table, this comes to the prophet who brought him back, and he calls out against the man of of God who came from Judah, because you have rebelled thus against the word of Yahweh and have not kept the commandment which Yahweh your God commanded you, but have returned and eaten and drunk water. Just re- again, those three things, return, eaten, drunk water. In the place which he said to you, eat no bread and drink no water, your body shall not come to the grave of your fathers. Just notice in verse 23, that man of God, He's been called a man of God until now. Verse 23, what's he called in verse 23? Do you see it? A prophet. Now you're called a prophet, like just in the way the story was written, the deceiver was called. The deceiver was the prophet, the old prophet. And now, since you've rebelled, you're not going to be called the man of God anymore. Now you're a prophet like him a deceiver, and deceived, rebellious. What's happening in this chastisement? Well, practically, a lion meets him, kills him, throws his body in the road with the donkey that he was on standing beside it, and then the lion and the donkey stand there. Notice they're not sitting. They're standing. If they were just Relaxing, the animals would just be sitting, lying down. No, this is, this is intentional. Uh, one day the lion will lie down with the lamb, right? The kingdom's coming. This isn't that day. This isn't that day. But this is supposed to be a sign for everybody who passes by, and it is. It becomes that. Men, verse 25, passed by and saw the body thrown on the road and the lion standing beside the body. And then everybody's talking about it. How awkward, how odd would it be as a passerby to see this dead body that, I mean, word clearly got around that prophet that cried out against the altar and rebuked Jeroboam, this is him. And there's a lion just standing there. And there's a donkey just standing there. Didn't eat the man. Just mauled him to death. What's happening here? The lion didn't even kill the donkey. So the lion is clearly not doing this for, out of hunger. The donkey's not killed. The body's not eaten. Turn back to Leviticus 26. I'll show you what's happening here. This is the fulfillment of an ancient curse. Leviticus 26. You have two all-important chapters in your Torah, in your Pentateuch, the law, where Moses gives or prophesies about the curses that will come upon Israel when they disobey. Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. All throughout the Old Testament and even into the New, it's almost like you never leave those chapters because the fulfillment of them is perpetual. Even today, you go to Israel, it's barren. Why? 
because these curses are being fulfilled to this day. In 1 Kings 13, Leviticus 26.22 is being fulfilled. Uh, verse 21, if then, this is Leviticus 26.21, if then you walk in hostility against me and are unwilling to obey me, I will increase the plague on you seven times according to your sins. And I will send out among you the beasts of the field, which will bereave you of your children and cut down your cattle and reduce your number so that your roads lie desolate. One of the curses, one of the many curses for Israel's disobedience is that the wild animals will be sent against them to kill some of them. Bereave them of children, cut down cattle, reduce your number so that your roads lie desolate. Anyone, anyone who knew the law would have gone, wow, it's happening. The lion's not hungry. God sent the lion to prove the fulfillment of his prophecy. And here they are just standing there as a testament from God of what happens when you obscure the clarity of what he has spoken. And because this was documented for us, this remains a lasting testament to what happens to those who obscure the clarity of God's word. All that this man of God prophesied came true. Josiah was born to the house of David. He instituted reforms that he sacrificed the priests of Bethel on the very altar in that place. He did all these things. And when Josiah read 1 Kings 13, then he made a monument to that prophet because of the true word that he had spoken. And this older prophet even anticipates this day. Verse 31, back in 1 Kings 13. When I die, you shall bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the word shall surely happen, which he cried by the word of Yahweh against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places which are in the cities of Samaria. So he acknowledges God is true. God's word was clearly spoken. It will be clearly fulfilled. And so he anticipates that day. Everything that God has spoken will come true. We still await many of those promises, do we not? Even as we prepare to take communion, a lasting reminder that we're doing that until he comes. We've received a clear word from God that Jesus is coming again. And so when you take communion, we're proclaiming that we believe Jesus was crucified for sinners and that he will come again. This is why we're still doing this, because we believe that even though God's promises have not been fulfilled yet, he has clearly spoken them and they will be clearly fulfilled in a literal bodily return for us one day. And he will one day establish the kingdom that we're waiting to see. He will make the lion lie down with the lamb. He will tame wild beasts so that they finally submit to man as they were created to do. And those of us who believe the gospel, who are waiting for this kingdom to come, who are submitting ourselves to God's truth because we believe him, we will, by God's grace, see that coming day. And we will praise God for the clarity of his word that has brought salvation to us. Let me pray and then um, think we'll be led in, commu in uh, receiving communion. God, thank you so, so much for speaking in the way that you have. Uh, though things seem so obscure to us at times, it is such an anchor for our souls to just know before we have subjective clarity in ourselves that we know you have spoken perfectly, objectively clear to us that we might know you 
that we might run to you as a refuge for our souls, that we might take you at your word and eventually one day lay hold of all of those things that you've promised your people. I pray for Grace Bible Church back home. I pray for Cornerstone, that you would teach us, God, to lay hold of these promises that we would just take you at your word. And though that may seem foolish to the unbelieving world around us, that we would boldly declare that you have spoken and you have given us a word that is, is providing eternal security for us. And that as we cling to those promises, God, that you would sanctify our lives and give us joy of following in the, in the way of Christ. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.